be seated. Good morning. It's good to be here and good to be with you. I always enjoy my time of being able to spend a few minutes with you. I want to ask you to grab Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. It's where we're going to be digging today. It's a little lightweight section of Scripture. As some of you have some familiarity with it, understand. Uh, what I want to also do is Zane has recommended that I mention this. Uh, Kathy and I are, my wife, uh, at Christ Costa Mesa, we've been hosting for many, 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 many years uh, young adult college, uh, what we call pasta nights at our house. And we have a lot of Concordia students who are finding their way to Christ Costa Mesa as a place where they're worshiping. And just want to remind you, if you're part of that group or even if you're interested, join us tonight. We start at 6.30. We're in Huntington, Zane. Zane, wave your hand. He's right there in case you want to uh, connect with him, and uh, we'll try to arrange some rides and that kind of thing as well. As you look up at the screen, I want you to note with me that this section of Scripture is going to be in three, three parts. Ooh, that's an interesting slide. Wow, okay. Must be the difference in, uh, in, uh, in the, the fonts, I guess, and how they, how they work. Here are the three parts. I'll just help you with that. First, it's going to start with a correction and a challenge. Then, secondly, it's going to go to a warning and a judgment. And then, thirdly, to an affirmation and an invitation. Now, it's real important to note between the second and third parts... If you don't connect the second and third parts together, it's like having the law without the gospel. It's like having Good Friday without the resurrection. And so the two things have to really fit together. I want you to look with me as we get started. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 as we go, and then we're going to pick up each section as we work our way into it. But here's the first couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, if you're part of my church and you see that the first word in the first sentence is the word therefore, there's something that we all say together at that moment, and that is wherever you see a therefore, you always ask yourself the question, what's the therefore there for? And it's always a reference to that which came before it, immediately right before it in the, in the text. So we need to back up a bit, and I want you to look with me at verses 11 through the end of the chapter of Hebrews chapter 5. Because as he says, therefore, he's referring back to this. And about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing, not real complimentary, is it? He's speaking to these Jewish Christians, people who've come out of this uh, understanding of who they are as people of the Torah and of the law and how they live out their lives and who they are in relationship with their God. And he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness since he is a child. So if he says, if you're unskilled, what does he want you to become? Skilled. Okay, skilled. But a solid food is for the mature. Notice what happens. For those who have their powers of discernment trained. He wants us to to have this faith understanding inside of us so that as we're living out our lives and the stuff of the world's coming at us, we can be able to make determinations about what's true, what's right, and where those subtleties are in between. And we're going to do that by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. In other words, and I hope this shows up there, there it is, don't settle for a shallow or a childish or an immature faith. All three of those kind of concepts show up 
in this particular text. But what he would say is, we want to take these things that are foundational and build on them. As you look at the, the text as it begins in, uh, there at, in, in verse 1 of 6, he says, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. The foundation's there. And what I think we have a tendency of doing is, is engaging in things of faith in a way that it's, we always go back to the things that are familiar. Because when you have to go into things that are hard, it requires us to think more. It requires us to research more. It requires us to try to understand more how God is working throughout all of the things and throughout all of the scriptures. Here's some of the things that, I, that, that we want to pull out of this where he's identifying what those foundational principles are. And the first one, and he's speaking this, remember, to Jewish Christians. And he says the first foundation that we just need to know needs to be in place is a repentance from dead works. Now, for a Jewish person that was growing up under the understanding of Torah, there was all kinds of law requirements that meant that they had to perform and had to do and had to accomplish things in certain ways. It was very external in their obedience to the things of God. These Jewish converts would understand that. It's how he's putting it before them. And he says, instead, we want you not only to be repenting from that former practice, but we want you to be turning toward faith of God, faith in God. Repentance means literally, if you know it, say it with me, to turn and go the other way. So if you have been headed towards works as your righteousness, works is the way in which you're going to be acceptable to God, he says you need to repent from that and understand that what God has done with his new covenant, Israel, is to be able to bring a new hope, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's this faith in our God. Interesting to me that he does not say faith in Christ. You see that? He says faith in faith of God. And he's connecting for them that this faith that they now live as people under Christ is the same faith that God has had in play all the time. It didn't just suddenly come into play. It's always been his plan. So he says, repent from your works righteousness efforts and instead turn to this plan, to this relationship with this God who has created a way for you in Jesus Christ. Now, as you look again at the text, you see that he's saying these elementary doctrines. There's four things that he identifies as elementary doctrines here. And what I'd like to suggest is that two of those show up when you're at the beginning of faith, and the other two are at the end of life. He says, let's not talk again, because you already know about washings, this connection to our baptism to the laying on of hands, to the the blessing that comes within those relationships and within the work of God in our lives. He says, those things need to be there. That's how you come into this. That's how that relationship gets established. And then he says, now there's a thing that happens at the end, and that is this eternal salvation, the resurrection, eternal life, eternal judgment. And we know that in that eternal judgment, when we stand before our God in heaven because of Christ, we are forgiven, we are ultimately received all the blessings and wonders of eternal life, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ did for us. So the writer of the Hebrews would say, 
Here you have these key foundational items. You're going to turn away from your good works. You're going to move towards the things of God. You know and understand that it's through baptism and God's blessing in your life that you're living out your faith that will ultimately end in a reality of your experience in eternal life and that in the final judgment, your judgment's not going to be about your works but about that faith in God. Now the key thing is what's going to happen in between? Because if these are the foundational items, then the question has to be asked, how do we see that those are set and now build on top of those? How do we see our faith develop further so that it goes deeper and we don't find ourselves repeating these same things over and over again? Now, what I want you to note with me is at the end of verse 3, he says, and this we will do if God permits. Who is always the active agent of our faith, us or God? You can answer the question. God is, right? And we're going to do this, and this is going to be accomplished as God empowers and works as people of faith through the power of His Spirit and His Word to do this for us. But then he immediately goes into verse 4 and he says, However, there are some who have so hardened their hearts that they are living apart from God, and in this thing that's called the sin against the Holy Spirit, This is why I told you earlier that we have this second section, but unless we connect it to the third section, all you have is law and not forgiveness and God's mercy in Christ. Let's look at that text, beginning of verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It's a pretty heavy section of Scripture, isn't it? He's saying that there are some who have come to this place where they have so rejected the things of God that they are beyond that place of restoration, of repenting from the ways of the law to come to the things of God. Now, how does that happen? What is going on in this? Let me tell you what this is not, first of all. This is not the sin of where we fall into error or we fall into our patterns of sins that we commit all the time. I have my favorite ones. Do you? Sins that we commit over and over again, and we kind of go, come on, God, please help me. Leave me not into temptation. Help me be strong. Give me the power of your spirit that I can resist and I can live more faithfully for you. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about weakness. We're not talking about the times when we walked away. I walked away for a significant time of my life, away from the things of God. And as the prodigal son, he welcomed me and received me. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about like what the apostle Peter did in the garden. Remember when the servant woman comes up to him and says, you're one of them. And what does he say? Don't know him. Even denying Christ is not what's going on here. There's something much more significant and much more vile, much more... Well, the word that's used is that they are engaged in holding up Christ to contempt. It's this idea of saying, as it does, that... You have crucified once again the Son of God. You ever heard someone say, and this is just kind of my understanding of how I'd want to communicate this. You ever heard someone say, you're dead to me. What does that mean? 
If someone is dead to you, it means you're not in my life. You're gone. You're history. You're done. You're dead. You just kind of see that in movies, you know, where families who are struggling in their circumstances or if somebody really ticks off the old man and he gets to a point where he says, I cut you out of my will. You are no longer in the inheritance. You are dead to me. This is that idea. In addition to being dead, it's the idea of being content. This idea that Jesus is being publicly mocked and rejected and reviled, kind of like what happened to him in the moments leading up to his actual crucifixion and then in the time also that he hung on the cross. What's the key to this? The key to this is this is a person who has lived in a relationship with Christ, has known and understand all the wonders and the blessings, because you see this, that we have tasted the heavenly gift. We have shared in the Holy Spirit. We have the goodness of the Word of God. We understand the powers of the ages to come of what eternal life means. And I reject it and I say to Jesus, you're dead to me. And I hold him up for ridicule in front of other people. I was thinking this week as I was been preparing and thinking about this text, I was listening to the radio and it was just in you know, one of those talk kind of stations and somebody got in because the Pope had been here, right? And they started reviling the things of God, speaking in judgment and rejection of who Jesus is. And I was thinking, well, that kind of sounds a little bit like Hebrews 6, but here's the thing. None of us are really going to know when you've crossed the line. Who alone does? God alone does. And what the church has tried to do over the years, and I'm talking about the Christian church has done over the years, is that if you find yourself in a position of going, oh my gosh, have I done this? And the church's answer is, then no, you haven't. Because if it matters to you, then your God matters to you. So don't let that catch you. Don't let that make you think that this is something that you've fallen into. Now he does go on, the writer says, it's kind of like this piece of land. This land in verse 7, for that land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produced a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but it bears, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed and its end is to be burned. Now put it in the context of the whole passage so far. He wants us to have secure these foundational principles of our faith. And he wants us to build in and fill in the realities of what we know from the beginning and what we know will happen at the end. And then we're going to see that foundation and we're going to build on that foundation. And he says, now there are some, though, that have so rejected that that's not going to happen. They don't want to hear the things of God. They don't want to have God speak into their life. But as I said to you before, if we left it there, it would really kind of be a bummer. It would be like Good Friday without Easter. Because then Jesus is just another dead guy. But you see what he says beginning in verse 9. Let me read this through the end for verse 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong for salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
So what does he say to the people who are reading this, these Jewish believers? And what is he saying to us here in this place in this moment today? And he says, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, this is not true of you. That stuff of the sin against the Holy Spirit, that stuff of treating Christ with contempt. He said, you are not like that. You and I can be sure of better things because of the salvation and the gift that he's given us in Jesus. And so we are people who then can build on the things of faith. We can go deeper and further than we've ever gone before as we seek to learn and understand more and more about the things of God. One of the things that that I always try to tell our folks in Costa Mesa is this. Read the scripture slowly. Because a lot of times we just kind of blow our way through a passage and we miss out on some really cool stuff that's there. I want you to note that there's one word in verse 9 that I kind of looked over when I first did this. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, what's the next word? Those of you who got your Bibles open, say it with me. Beloved, 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 beloved. Beloved certainly to the writer, but beloved most of all to whom? The things of our God. Anytime I hear that word beloved, I immediately think of uh, the great book in the Old Testament, Song of Solomon, all the dialogue back and forth of the lover, God, and the beloved, his church, the bride of Christ and the bridegroom, Jesus, and that there's this deep, passionate love that is there. Here's the thing that I know. Kathy and I have been married. She actually works here at Concordia, if those who don't know, in the foundation office. Is actually sitting out on the hole-in-one golf course hole today for the golf tournament. So she should be nice and sunburned when she gets home. She loves me unconditionally. And I'm sometimes really hard to love, just like you. But when she loves me that way, you know what it does for me? It brings out the best in my love back. It brings out the best in what I want to do to love her and to serve her. See, this is what God does for us in his gift of grace, is that he so pours out his love and his forgiveness when I don't deserve it, because what I really deserve is like the guys who had sinned against the Holy Spirit. Our God pours out his grace so that I would know his forgiveness. And because of that grace that I've received, it enables me then to respond through his strength, through his spirit, guided by his word, to see all kinds of things happen in my life. And then what he also says to these Jewish Christians is, your God notices that there's also external evidence of how you're living out your life. Isn't that what he says? Look at it. He says, for God, in verse 10 is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He says, God knows it. God sees it. There's evidence of your faith. Don't think that you're like one of those guys who's the sin against the Holy Spirit. That's not you. You have better things. You are a recipient of God's grace and mercy and love. And because of that, you then live out your life in faith where you can't help but being the people of God in your world. And the joy that it brings... Kathy, when I love her back unconditionally, as I serve her, as I try to be the best husband that I can be to her, it's the joy that our God has when when he receives back as an act of worship the things that we do that are the outcomes 
of the work that he's done in us. We're almost done. No longer sluggish, but earnest to the end. Do you love that word sluggish? I think about a car. Let's just pick a small car, a four-cylinder car. And if you took off a couple of the, uh, or at least one of the, of, the, of the wires off of the spark plugs in that car, that car will still get somewhere, but what is it going to be to use our word? It's going to be driving sluggish, right? What does it mean for us to not be sluggish in faith, but be people that are thriving, to be people that are seeing all kinds of incredible things happen? That's the stuff that he wants to do in us so that we are now earnestly pursuing that, so that we would imitate those who have been faithful despite their circumstances that we can look to them as encouragers, as we can look to them as we look to one another and say, wow, your example of faith has been a blessing to me and how you've handled this thing that's been going on in your life. Because then that encourages me, just as maybe my life encourages you, so that we might come to that place where we are full recipients of the inheritance that our God has for us in Christ. Full recipients. Imagine if... An attorney for your, I'll make up some, for your grandmother calls you, and your grandmother has passed away. She's graduated to heaven. And the attorney calls you up and says, Hey, by the way, you're in the will. But then you never hear from him again. See, you have, that's the promise, but it's not the fulfillment. Your God has for you because of Jesus Christ, not just the promise, but he has the fulfillment, eternal life that we live out every day, and eternal life that we will live someday in heaven. In the meantime, let's be people who build on the foundation that's already set. The power of God at work in us to fill in that space between the things we know and the things that we know we will yet be that we can live maybe as examples for others, that they would engage him as well. And to know that that confident faith is one that we live every single day, sure of our salvation, never doubting it, never questioning it, because we know that God will accomplish those incredible things through us for his glory, and as we then live it out as respondents of faith. Pray with me.